So again, today is Easter, sometimes called Resurrection Sunday, and it's a big deal. It really is, and that's part of what I want to talk to you about today. Um, to celebrate Easter is to engage in it, to, to sort of figure out what it all means. And so Easter is important to us because it is really the anchor of our faith. If Easter is true, if the resurrection is true, then it's game on for all things Christian. If the resurrection did not happen, then it's game over because everything that we are about hinges on, hangs on the resurrection. That's why we say that the resurrection of Jesus is what launched the church and all of Christianity. It is central, and we're telling you that in advance. This is what we're hanging everything on. So if you have a hard time believing some of this stuff, we acknowledge this is the big deal for us. All the rest of the arguments and questions are secondary. This is the big one. So I'm going to tell you some things that maybe you don't know, or maybe you do know this, and you know this anyways, but before the resurrection, there were no Christians. Zero. Before the resurrection, there were no Jesus followers. When Jesus was crucified, every single person thought that Jesus would do what every single person who was crucified and dies does. And what's that? Stay dead, right? When he died, even the people who loved him the most, that hung out with him the most, assumed that he would stay dead because that's what dead people do. They had even seen somebody else, Lazarus, come back from the dead, and yet they still believed Jesus was dead. On Easter Sunday, when, they all, when, the, when, the, when the people who went to the tomb went to the tomb, nobody expected nobody. It was a complete surprise. When they looked into the tomb and looked at each other, they did not say, he's alive, he's alive. They said, they stole the body. They stole the body. We got to go and find the body. The apostle Paul, who wrote to some Christians in a city called Corinth in the first century, he summarized this story beautifully. So I'm going I'm to read this section to you, and then we're going to talk about why this is so relevant to every single one of us, okay? So this is from 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news. I preach to you, when you receive, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Jump down. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried because that's what you do with dead people, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is just another name for Peter, the apostle Peter. And then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Paul's saying this is not fake news, okay? Fact check me. If you don't believe this story, and I totally understand this is a hard story to believe, but if you don't believe, go check it out for yourself. There are hundreds of people that you can go talk to. Hundreds of people that will tell you, I saw Jesus die. 
Yes, I saw a resurrected Jesus. Passage finishes off, though some have fallen asleep. Did you know that throughout the New Testament, when Christians speak about death, they often refer to it as falling asleep? It's a beautiful way to speak about it. And do you know why they refer to those who have died having fallen asleep? It's not just a euphemism to make people feel better. Because when people fall asleep, they eventually wake up. Their confidence in the resurrection was so strong, they were comfortable talking about other people as when they died as having fallen asleep. It's just a temporary condition. Wouldn't you like to have confidence like that? And then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And so since the resurrection is a really big deal, it's, it's the central deal, it's the central point of Christianity, it's the, it's the essence from, every, from it, everything else blooms, I want to do three things and I want to talk to three groups of people, okay? So three groups of people. First, there's the, gr- the group who believe but wonder. Sure, I believe. But is this really all real? Um, can this really be true? Like, I have my good days and my bad days. Am I, am I going to see my loved ones again? And I want to assure all of you who believe like me, but sometimes wonder if this is all, if this is... Is there more to life than just this? For those of you who say, come on, it's the 21st century. Honestly, how can anyone believe that? If you wonder how anyone can believe, how can you honestly say that you believe such absurd things? Look at the date, man. It's 2018. We don't believe like that anymore. We're all done with that superstitious stuff. You might have come here, and you might be here this morning with your arms crossed on the outside. And if they're not crossed on the outside, they might very well be crossed on the inside. And that's okay. We're glad you're here. And you look around and you say, well, the people here, well, I don't know. They seem nice enough. They don't all look insane. Some of them do, but, but not all of them. How can they believe such wild things in the 21st century? Dead people don't come back to life except in zombie movies. And when they come back, they look pretty creepy. If that's you today... I want to remove, I want to, I'm going to try and remove one objection that you have towards faith in case you ever decide to examine the claims of Christ. Third group, for those of you who wonder if it's possible to believe again, because you're like me, you were raised in church in some form or other, you raised your hand, you came forward, you signed a card, you meant well, you got baptized, you met an elder, you had an interview with a pastor, uh, you went on an admissions trip, and then, then you went off to school. And people started asking very, very difficult questions about religion, and about the Bible, and about Jesus, and maybe you were surprised by their generally dismissive attitude that you experienced. So you went home to inquire, and and all you got when you came home were faith-based answers to fact-based questions, Sunday school answers to your adult questions, and in the process, you lost your faith. It was there, and then it faded in importance, and then it faded in relevance until you could no longer locate it. My faith just vanished. I'm hoping today to give you a stepping stone back to faith. 
So for all those three groups, the key is in the passage that I just read to you. It shows each of us the way forward. And here's why I say that. The primary argument against the legitimacy of the Christian faith is the resurrection. And the argument goes something like this. The resurrection is a myth. It's a myth that uh, resulted from multiple decades of oral tradition, oral transmission, that's so distorted and so exaggerated to suit the agenda of a later generation of Christians, all about power and control. So people told stories to people who told stories to people who told stories to people who told stories. And by the time that any of these things about Jesus are actually written down, so much time has passed that anyone who was around to see Jesus, to see any of that stuff, was long dead. Then by the time they wrote these things down, they had fabricated, they had made up stories to make Jesus into something that he wasn't and something that Jesus never claimed to be. So the assertion here is that the written accounts, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were too far removed from the actual events to be accurate accounts of actual events. Too far removed from the actual events to be accurate accounts of actual events. And many schools that you can go to, public or uh, university kind of schools, will teach you that there's no way that you can believe that what is recorded as what Jesus said is what Jesus said because they were all written down so long after all the eyewitnesses were dead. The resurrection, just a myth that grew up over decades and decades of oral transmission. That is the classic argument against the resurrection, which then grows into the classic argument against all of Christianity. The resurrection is just legend and hearsay. So today, I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't know, you've probably never heard before. I'm going to tell you something that maybe your college professor didn't know, but they certainly did not tell you if they did know. Today, I want to explain to you why you can have extraordinary confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, you're going to need to use your brain today, all right? We're going to have to pay attention. And so, again, if you've got some notes there, you're going to want to write some of these things down because I'm going to, I can't go slow. We're going to have to keep moving. All scholars agree, and that's already a huge statement because all scholars never agree about anything. But all scholars agree that the Apostle Paul was a real person. So real that his movie is coming out right about now. Uh, he, li he lived in the first century, um, and he he's not just some made-up Bible guy. All scholars agree that he had an extraordinary influence on Christianity. He's a real person with real influence. The Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of letters. A lot of you don't know what a letter is. They're what, like, he's sort of like a bill that comes to you, except somebody wrote it to you on purpose for a nice reason. That's what a letter was like, something that you get in the mail that you don't have to pay. Um, and letters are sometimes known as epistles, all right? So 13 of his letters or epistles uh, are documents or, or they're ancient manuscripts have been gathered together and they become part of the New Testament. Now, for the next few minutes, I need you to try and think differently. Um, I don't want you to think of the Bible, okay? This is not a message about the Bible said, 
all right? The problem is that many people look to the date that St. Jerome lashed together all 39 of the Old Testament manuscripts with the 27 manuscripts from the New Testament, put them both together, and he did that in 400 A.D. And so that is the date that people much of the time look at and they say, that's when the Bible was finished being written. So many people think and they complain that it wasn't written. The Bible wasn't even written until 400 A.D., long after the eyewitnesses are all dead. But 400 A.D. was when the Latin translation called the Vulgate, and the Vulgate just means the common edition. The common edition because now it was written in Latin. They had translated from Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek, all of those into Latin so that the common people could now read it. 400 A.D. is when they all got lashed together. What we're going to talk about is not the Bible says. What we're going to talk about are letters. They are historical documents that the Apostle Paul wrote to a bunch of people who were Christians in the first century. So we just heard, I just read a passage from one of Paul's letters to you. That's the first letter that he wrote to, a, to the people who live in a city called Corinth. And for us, we call that 1 Corinthians. The first letter to the church in Corinth. And that was written in about the year 55. Okay? And this is a big deal. Again, because most scholars agree that Jesus was crucified in the year 30 to 32. Can't nail it down exactly, but that's the agreement. Between 30 and 32 AD. There are no credible scholars that believe that Jesus was not a historical figure anymore. There have been people, there have been professors who have said, you know what? We're not even sure that there was a historical Jesus. That was a thing. That is no longer a thing. That thinking has come and that thinking has gone. So Jesus crucified 30, 32, somewhere in there. 1 Corinthians written in about 55. And Paul wrote this letter after he had already visited Corinth. So the visit when he went to Corinth that he's referring to in the letter was in 52. He went to Corinth in 52 and he planted a church. He started a church in Corinth and he wished he had named it into one. And then he went back home and he wrote them a letter. We call that letter 1 Corinthians. This is historically undisputed. This explains Paul's use of the past tense in the passage that we just read. So let's look at it again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you I'm going to remind you. He's reminding them, this is what I taught you when I was with you. I taught it to you in 52. And now here it is. I'm writing it back to you. And I will remind you of it in 55. Because 52, that's a while ago for y'all. So I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, to which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, now this is really important again. Paul is about to tell them what someone else told him before he told them. When he was with them, he had heard it before 52. The information that he's going to remind them of has been around for a while. 
The Apostle Paul wasn't making this stuff up. He wrote to them about it, but that wasn't the first time they heard about it. The message did not start with Paul. So he goes on, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. Scholars agree again. Jesus was executed by the Romans. And then we get to the part that everybody argues about, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's where we put the foot on the brake and we go, wait, 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 wait. (sighs) Raised from the dead. Okay. So Paul wrote this in about 55, after telling folks about it in 52. Now, this is just 20 years after the event. Now, if you are 50 or over, we could probably push it down to 45. If you are 45, ah, we could probably go down to 40. If you are 40 or older, 20 years is just not that long anymore. If you're 19, 20 years is a long time. But if you're 40, 45, 50, 20 years is not that big of a deal. The Apostle Paul clearly believed that Jesus rose from the dead, and he believed it documented 20 years after the event. He said, somebody told me that Jesus rose from the dead. Next thing you need to know, this year, the year that he visited, the 52, was not the Apostle Paul's first trip to plant a church. In the year 44, he went to the area of Cyprus, and he told the people in Cyprus the exact same things that he told the people in Corinth. So in the year 44, Paul was already telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul said he knew Jesus rose from the dead because someone else told him. Now this doesn't seem to fit at all into the idea that the resurrection was a legend that developed hundreds of years later after generations and generations of oral transmission. Nobody ever wrote anything down. Nothing's ever documented until decades and decades after the eyewitnesses are dead. That is not the story that Paul is teaching. Because you have in front of you, whether you have it with you or you have it in your phone, the hard copy, you have access to, in your English New Testament, a document that says that Jesus rose from the dead, and that was written within 20 years of the actual event. Those documents are there telling the story prior to 55, in 52 is when he told them, and even prior to that in 44. So he goes on, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Now, I got to say, this is not my primary speed, all right? And doing this to you the morning, on Easter morning, to give you math and numbers. I know there's a couple of you going, math and numbers, awesome. But for most of you, you're going, oh, great, more numbers. I don't even know what's going on. So with, with that kind of apology, more numbers, okay? Twelve years after the crucifixion, Paul is claiming that Jesus appeared to Peter and other apostles, documented. Just 12 years after the crucifixion, not hundreds and hundreds of years um, after the crucifixion, that there was a claim that Peter and the other apostles had in fact told people that they believe, and they're sharing this story around about the resurrection. So how did the apostle Paul know that Peter believed? How did he know that Jesus rose from the dead? Paul tells us how he knew that. He tells us in another one of the undisputed letters. This is the letter to the church in the Roman province called Galatia. And we call that Galatians. This is another letter that Paul wrote between 55 and 57 AD. In this letter, 
Paul says that three years after he became a Christian, he went to Jerusalem and he tried to meet with the apostles. That's when he paid Peter a visit. So again, these are actual people with actual lives and actual relationships. They're not Bible characters that only exist on pages. If you were a Christian in the first century and you had the opportunity to spend time with someone who would spend a lot of time with Jesus, how interesting would that be for you? Like for me, that would just blow my mind. Of course Paul wanted to meet Peter. Peter was the man. Peter had been with Jesus. Peter was like the guy who's getting all the publicity right now. He worked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He learned from Jesus for years. What an opportunity to meet and talk to that guy. So Paul never got to know Jesus as a person. He became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection. Just like me. I became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection. So this is what Paul means. This is what Paul writes in the 50s, okay, from Galatians. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, Peter again, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. The apostle Paul believed that James was the brother of Jesus and that that did not adjust his view on who Jesus was at all. James became a follower of his own brother. But he didn't become a follower of his brother until after the resurrection. This meeting that the Apostle Paul with Peter and James happened about the year 40. But he said that it was three years after he became a believer. So the Apostle Paul became a Christian probably about the year 37. That's about five years after the resurrection. About five years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, and he says that Peter and James are very much talking about the resurrection. This is astounding in terms of history. If all that we had was someone documenting, talking about the resurrection 20 years after it happened, that would already be amazing and already be enough to say this theory, this notion that it's hundreds and hundreds of years later that people were actually talking about this, it would already be refuted. But now we have tracked this timeline and we've backed up the timeline all the way to just a few years after the resurrection itself. And in Jerusalem at that point, people already believed and were talking about the resurrection of Jesus. That means that the first accounts of the resurrection of Jesus are not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those Gospels were actually written later than Paul's letter in 55. That's why so many secular historians, the unbelieving skeptic scholars, they make the case, well, we don't know when the Gospel of Matthew was written, and we don't have a date for when the Gospel of Mark was written, and we can't nail down when the Gospel of Luke was written, and I can't tell you exactly on the calendar when the Gospel of John was written. So we don't know when these things came about. We don't know when they were written. So there's just too much up in the air. They were all written many, many, many years after the resurrection. But the problem, the stick in the mud, is the Apostle Paul. Because Paul was talking about the resurrection within just a very few years of the actual event. And he went through radical life change in becoming a believer just a few years after the resurrection. 
And then he met the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But wait, there's still more. This is the part that you might not have ever heard about. Maybe you've heard all those dates before and you knew that kind of stuff. But this part, maybe you haven't heard this. New Testament scholars, both believing and unbelieving scholars, are convinced that some of what the Apostle Paul said in that passage that I just read for you in 1 Corinthians, some of those scholars believe that the words, <coughs> excuse me, that some of those words were part of a pre-existing creed. A creed is a carefully crafted, memorably worded uh, series of sentences that are used to easily um, to, to, to ensure accurate transmission of important information, especially when it came to religious things. Why? Why do you need to do this? Because in the first century, very few people could read or write. In a large city, a big city, maybe 12 to 15% of the people could read and write. But outside of a big city, forget about it. Virtually no one could read or write. So how could you communicate very important information to the people who couldn't read and write? Well, they would create poems or songs or creeds. And they would use these creedal statements and they would craft them in such a way that they were easy to remember to help people learn. And you know this because you have done this. You know that these things work. Each and every one of you knows this and you've experienced this in your own life. See if you know this song, this poem, this early creedal statement. See if you can follow along with me. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, O, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Now I know my ABCs, next time won't you sing with me? How do you know that? Why did someone take the time to take the alphabet and put it to music and, and, and set up a cadence with it that we can all resonate with, that we can all finish? Why did they do that? Well, they did it to teach children who could not read or write. <coughs> and it works. I mean, for pity's sake, you all learned it. Now, here's what scholars say. Within this letter, <coughs> written in about 20 years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul quotes a creed that already existed that was so popular among Christians that Christians had already memorized it, and not just in that area. We don't know exactly um, what the original words are. We don't know if it was in the Aramaic first or if it was in Greek. Those were the two languages that were kind of big at that time. But even if we think of it in English, just the translated words, and we tweak the English words just a touch, you can get the rhythm that's in this creed. And it goes like this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose again and was seen. Now, if we left at just that, just having read it, just having heard it a couple of times, I bet you could remember this key part on your own. So this is what the scholars tell us. As Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthians, he's explaining to them 
the good news, the gospel. And he says, this is the most important thing. This thing is of first importance. And he included part of a creed they probably already knew. That means that the resurrection was already so widely known and accepted that it had been summarized and included in a creed for the church. This creed is probably the oldest piece of literature in the entire New Testament. And it predated Paul's letter because Paul already knew it before he wrote the letter. Now, does all of that prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be? No, absolutely not. Does this prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Absolutely not. But please don't miss this part. Paul's letter to the Corinthians is evidence that people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus die believed he rose from the dead. By the time that Paul wrote the letter and before, there were already people living in Jerusalem who believed Jesus rose from the dead. And there, there were men and women who had seen Jesus die. It's evidence, historical evidence. But Paul's letter proves a number of things. Paul's letter proves that the resurrection of Jesus was not a product of decades of oral transmission. This refutes that very common argument and accusation that has been brought against the resurrection time and again. Paul documented it. He's the first person that we know of to put it in writing. And it wasn't 100 years after the event. It wasn't 50 years after the event. It, it, it wasn't years after all of the eyewitnesses had passed away. He says that he got his information from an eyewitness. And then he names the eyewitnesses that he got the information from. Then in another letter, at another time, he documents his personal trip to Jerusalem to meet with and talk to eyewitnesses that he mentions. But Paul's letter proves something else as well. Paul's letter proves belief in the resurrection was documented while eyewitnesses were still eyewitnessing. As a skeptic, you could say, well, I guess that's true. But you know what? Maybe Paul was lying, right? People lie all the time. You want to make a point? Lie. Well, no reputable scholar has ever accused the Apostle Paul of being a liar. Did you know that? No one has ever said that he's lying about what he wrote. Skeptics, agnostics, unbelievers, atheists, professors that disbelieve all kinds of things. But no one has ever argued against the idea that the Apostle Paul was a real person who wrote a real letter in 55 AD and no one believes that he made it up. The reason that no one has accused the Apostle Paul of fabricating this is because his life validated his belief. His life validated his belief. Oh, that someday someone could say that of me. Would you like someone to say that of you in your life? Your life validated your belief. Because nobody disputes the fact that the Apostle Paul was an educated man, a connected man, a Pharisee, that he, was, that, that he left the comforts of home, that he left his wealth, he left his family, he left his entire belief system and did the most dangerous thing imaginable in those days. He got on a ship and he traveled to all the major port cities around the Mediterranean Sea. He went to meet with Jews to try and convince them that, 
that Jesus was the Son of God. They threw him out of the synagogues. Then worse, he went to the Gentiles. And this is difficult for us to grasp the emotions that are, that are involved in dealing with this. But and mostly because we are Gentiles and we live in a world that has already benefited from what Paul did on our behalf. Paul went to the Gentiles and he tried to convince them that God had sent a Jew to be their savior. That's a hard package to sell. This had a profound and easily visible impact on Paul's life, okay? It was this teaching that got him stoned, that got him imprisoned, that got him flogged, shipwrecked. He caused riots when he was in town. He got chased out of cities. Everywhere the Apostle Paul went, there was trouble because this message was so incredibly offensive. But now his pain, his torment, his suffering all contribute to why scholars believe that the Apostle Paul was absolutely convinced that what he was saying was true. Because nobody would do that again and again and again. Do you know what else no one has ever accused the Apostle Paul of? Being insane. The reason that no one accuses him of being insane is because they have read his letter to the Christians in Rome. It is such a complex and sophisticated document. It's as if it was written by a first century attorney. And he creates the super tightly wound case for what he believed. And his letter to the Christians living in Galatia, very much the same. A brilliantly well thought out and argued case. So no one's ever accused him of lying. And nobody thinks that he's insane. The one thing, the one letter that he wrote um, to the Christians in Corinth proves that the Bible didn't create Christianity. The Bible didn't exist for several hundred years. It also proves that Christians didn't create Christianity. The idea is frequently taught in schools, different school systems, that a bunch of Christians, they came together, they decided decades and decades later, they came up with these wild ideas. And they made this case to try and give them power and control. But it's just not the case. Paul's letter proves that the resurrection created Christianity. So only a resurrection could explain the courage of those who had just been with Jesus. They had just been with him, watched him crucified horribly. And then they were arrested and brought to trial. Nothing but the resurrection would help to explain that sudden, extraordinary uh, change in courage for Peter who had denied Jesus, for John and the other apostles who all ran away. When they were arrested by the very same men who had arrested, who had arrested and tried Jesus, when they were eyeball to eyeball with the men who had their lives in their hand, and they were asked, all right, you're on trial right now. In whose name are you preaching? Here's what they say. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then they looked at the very men that had signed the order, organized the trial, had Jesus crucified just a couple of weeks before. And they said, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Don't miss this. The resurrection was central 
in the early Christian's message just a few weeks after the resurrection when Peter and John were arrested. Central just a few weeks later. Now Peter and John are facing the exact same men who have the power to crucify them the same way that they just had Jesus crucified. And they went on and they said this, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Just no one was this bold when staring into the immediate possibility of a scourging and then even crucifixion. No one has that much courage. This is the point where the vast majority of people are on their knees begging for mercy. So great was that threat of horrible punishment. And Luke, Luke who thoroughly investigated all of these things, tells us that when the people who arrested Peter and John, when they saw the courage of of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And when they were warned no longer to speak in that name, here's what they said. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Not what we believe. What we have seen and heard. These eyewitnesses saw Jesus die. And then they went and they peered into the empty tomb that they didn't expect to be empty And they all assumed that the body was stolen. They were all putting together a conspiracy theory. But later on in that week, they had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. You cannot scare men. You cannot scare women who don't fear death. You can't scare men and women who have stared eyeball to eyeball with the resurrection and the life. And that's how all this got started. That's how it all began. Not based on a book but based on an event that changed my life. And I bet it's changed your life as well. That event changed the world and the resurrection continues to change the world. And that early creed summarizes it quickly for us. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. And so for those three groups of people, the ones who, like me, believe but sometimes wonder, I just, I just want you to know your faith and your hope is not in vain. For those of you who wonder, who could still believe in such things? Well, now you know. There's an awful lot more to this story than you thought. And for those of you who wonder if you'll ever be able to believe again because you got Sunday school answers to your adult questions, I want to invite you back. I want you to reconsider the faith of your childhood because I am betting There is so much more that no one ever told you. There is no better day than this to acknowledge that name that stands above every name. The name of Jesus. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace is so full and so free. Thank you that your grace offers us something beyond this life. Father, thanks for preserving these texts. Thanks for the the boldness of Peter 
Thanks for the boldness of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that we don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in a book, but we have faith in an event that stands at the center of history and that has changed the world. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we have heard and then the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. The one who saves, Savior. That's what Hosanna means. The one who saves, the one who saves me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And I don't give as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Hey, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for celebrating, for being part of um, our celebration. It's better when you're here. It really is. It's better when we're together and I'm glad that you were able to join with us today.